How's working from home been going for you? Remarkably Remote from GoToMeeting will help you succeed in today's new normal. In just three minutes or less, we'll share simple but helpful tips to keep you on track. From managing your motivation, workload, and relationships to hosting and attending virtual events to keep you connected with your clients and colleagues. So check out Remarkably Remote on your favorite podcasting platform or head to gotomeeting.com slash tips. Welcome back, everyone. This is No Sleep Till Belmont, the Islanders podcast from The Athletic. I'm Arthur Staple, your Islanders beat writer. And today we've got a very special guest, uh, someone who a lot of Islander fans have a lot of time for, so we've got a lot of time for him, Mr. Howie Rose. Howie, how are you? Arthur, how you doing? Times must have changed. <laughs> it was a time they had no time for me early on, but thankfully that changed over the years. Yeah, yeah, we uh, <clears throat> we are in a uh, a weird, weird time, and as someone as busy as you are, uh, I can only imagine that uh, having all this time on your hands at a at a time of year when you'd be uh, ramping up every day with the Mets is uh, is very strange for you. Yeah, it is. In fact, I'm starting to wonder if the title of your show might be prescient because the next Islander game might be at Belmont. <laughs> Wait, where well, going? I think. Some Islander fans would be happy about that if the timeline were moved <laughs> up, but uh, but I think in the interim, yeah, we're just uh, we're talking more and more about mm-hmm. things that have happened in the past because we don't have a whole lot of stuff going on. But I'll start off even without really any news right now. You're you're still an, an avid observer of of hockey, uh, even though you don't call the games anymore. Do you think it's realistic for them to to have whatever f- plans they floated about a summer tournament, expanded playoffs, just from where you sit and from, as a broadcaster? How comfortable would you would you be calling games either off a monitor or in an empty arena? Well, that's that's going to be kind of a long winded answer, but it's really for me, Arthur, the ultimate tug of war between head and heart. Uh, certainly, my heart wants to get back as soon as possible, and I think that it it would energize, frankly, the American public who have an interest in sports to have this form of entertainment give them, however brief a respite from everything that we've basically been anesthetized practically by over this last little while, last little while, it's a couple of months now. And yeah. so it's taken a toll on a lot of people, you know, I think emotionally as well as financially and, and whether it's baseball first and everybody else fall into line behind that, we need that. We want it. And hopefully it happens. But then, you know, when you start thinking with your head, and you pay attention to everything that the experts have been saying, whether it's Drs. Fauci and Burks, whether it's others within the medical community who acknowledge that they don't have a firm grip on this, that there's a lot that they don't know. And I think most importantly, as states begin to reopen, if cases spike, then we might be back to square one. I mean, there's a lot of risk involved in what's going on right now. So I think it's impossible to project with any certitude that any sport can be back by such and such a date. It's great to have a plan in place as we're seeing the various sports start to adopt, but it's impossible to put your finger on a date when they could implement those plans. Now, as far as my personal feelings as a broadcaster, I would have no trepidation about going to City Field. And even though there would not be fans there broadcasting the games live from our broadcast booth, we'd have the windows open. There'd be sufficient social distancing between those in the booth and myself. I think we can make that work, and I would have a fair amount of confidence that it would be about as safe as we'd like it to be under the circumstances. 
As far as the other stuff, as far as doing it off a monitor when the team's on the road, I would like to do that from the ballpark as well. Same thing, windows open. That would be a choice that would benefit me for a couple of reasons, not only from the standpoint of I'd rather be at the ballpark than in uh, you know, a studio uh, where you don't have windows in a broadcast studio. Uh, there's really no air circulating. That would concern me. And the other thing is, and maybe I have to be a broadcaster to truly understand this, but there are aesthetics involved too. And I think if I were in a building where even if the game weren't being played and I'm watching it on a monitor, there's a baseball field and the stands in front of me. That would be energizing. That would kick up an extra uh, dose of adrenaline that might be missing in a more, and I don't know that you could even use this term, antiseptic studio. So, you know, again, my uh, my emotions are, are very mixed for a variety of reasons. Hopefully what I've just, you know, gone on upon makes sense. It does. It does. And it's, you know, we're trying to make sense of something that is hard to wrap your brain around even on a, on a personal level when we start you start thinking about teams and staffs and broadcast crews and bus drivers and, you know, TV employee, you know, it, it, it becomes so, so much bigger and, and all of their contacts, it's, mm-hmm. uh, it can really, it can really shut your brain down a little bit for sure. Yeah. And mine's um, pretty well locked up right now. So <laughs> and <laughs> understandable. trip. Well, well, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll turn on the Wayback Machine a bit to go back to 1995 when, uh, when you became the Islanders' play-by-play announcer. Um, you know, you had obviously had a very successful little run with the Rangers and had an iconic call that still resonates today with, with every hockey fan, not just Ranger fans, even if Islander fans that are listening don't want to reminisce about that one. But uh, how did it come about, how did it come it. about that you ended up in the broadcast booth following the, the legend in Jake McDonald? Well, you know, I know that you take it back to 1995, which is when it materialized, but I'll take it back to the very beginning, 1972, 73, and then sort of progress from there, if that's okay. And the reason I do that is because not only was 72, 73, the first year the Islanders were in business, it was my freshman year in college at Queens College. Now, background, full disclosure, yeah, I grew up a Ranger fan before there were Islanders. I had season tickets for the Rangers before there were Islanders. And several times when I had those season tickets in section 429, row G, seat 11, I actually brought my tape recorder and did play by play uh, into a microphone and taped it from the stands. I don't think I didn't get a few weird looks there, but I knew (laughs) even back then that's what I wanted to do. Broadcast, broadcast hockey specifically. So, you know, if you just extrapolate from that, that, you know, my plan was going to involve uh, really diligently working to learn the craft as well as the art of broadcasting, you get to 72, 73, and now I'm a freshman at Queens College and working at their college radio station. Well, on a couple of occasions, I was able to get credentials to cover an Islander game and just sit in the press box. I didn't have locker room privileges that first year. The second year, though, I did. And so that second year, which was Al Arbor's first year with the Islanders, I don't think I'm exaggerating if I said I probably went to about 20 games with full credentials, did the play-by-play into a tape recorder, and played it straight. I mean, I didn't fool around. I had an analyst with me who was a writer for the school paper, Steve Taub, and later became a very successful financial writer and analyst. And so, you know, we took it dead seriously. And along with doing the play-by-play, I was able to go downstairs 
and do post-game interviews, including with Al Arbor, who, you know, along with Joe Torrey, are one of the two most important people in my career from the standpoint of injecting confidence in me that my questions were good and that I was on the right track. I mean, they never, ever, ever made me feel any less a part of that post-game scenario than any of the beat writers who'd been in the business maybe 20, 30 years. So I had an affinity for the Islanders going back to the very beginning because of what they allowed me to do to begin the building blocks for a career. And so I got to know some of those players, among others, those who would play on the dynasty team from virtually the very beginning. Eddie Westfall, my first partner, was one of them, although he didn't play when they started winning the Cups. But, you know, Bob Nystrom and Billy Smith and and some of the others were around then. And and, um, and ensuing seasons, I, I had similar credentials. And, and so that was a job I, I coveted if it ever became available. Um, and so when I heard in the summer of 95 through the broadcasting back channels that Jigs might not be back, I called my agent and said, pounce on this and see if there's a chance that, you know, we'll get some positive feedback. And, you know, I, I did get immediate interest from the people who were running Sports Channel at the time. Pete Silverman was the new executive producer. He wanted to make his mark on the network. And, and there was the very predictable concern among some of the hierarchy with the Islanders, never mind the fan base, of how it would be accepted, this guy who was so closely connected with the Rangers coming over and doing Islander games. Um, they couldn't have known what that job meant to me, given my roots and the Islanders' roots at the very beginning. And so I just sort of hoped that along the line, I'd be able to sell myself and and dodge the slings and arrows that would inevitably come my way. And And they did. <laughs> But thankfully, it worked out. <laughs> it did for, for 20 years. And, uh, you know, we think about the Islanders and it, whether it's owners or players, uh, general managers, they've run through a lot of people. But but the idea that in the last 40 years, there have only been three men who have called the games on TV, Jigs, yourself, and now Brendan Burke, it's, uh, it, and, and three people who have achieved a lot in the in the broadcasting world. Is, it, is that something that you ever stop and think about, the, the continuity that existed in that broadcast booth that didn't really exist anywhere else in the organization for all that time. Yes. Yes, it absolutely did. I, I, whether it's a, a benefit or a fault, I'm very, very, uh, I would say introspective naturally. So I think about stuff like that all the time. And I'm very proud that at the moment, I think I've certainly, I don't, I'm, I don't think Kinger has done more games, but I, I think as of this moment, I've done more games as an Islander broadcaster than anybody. And I'm very proud of that because I think a lot of us would have bet the under when I signed my first contract <laughs> in 95. And so to have endured as I did is something that means a lot to me selfishly and on a more global scale organizationally. Uh, the fact that I was able to connect with the fan base and the organization is something that I am enormously proud of. And the fact that, as you suggest, there are only three of us, Jigs, myself, and now Brendan, who have done it going back to 1980. Um, that's special. That means a lot to me. And it never, ever, ever gets lost on me. That's great. And you did, you know, you kind of bridged a lot of eras of, of commentators, like you said, going from Ed Westfall, who I think a lot of the, you know, fans of a certain age, the Dynasty era fans certainly remember as, as the color voice of the Islanders, mm -hmm. into Joe Micheletti. Billy Jaffe and then Butch Goring, who's still doing it today. You know, how do you, how did you approach working with each one? And, you know, some, it's a couple of former players and a couple of players who didn't 
you know, make it to that high level, but have made it to that high level as color analysts. Uh, what was it like for e- working with each one of them and the adaptation time, I guess, you needed for each one? Well, in the very beginning for me, it was a matter of just being accepted by a guy, meaning Eddie, who had been an Islander since their inception, who was very well aware of the culture. And by my transferring over from the Rangers, might have looked at me somewhat cynically or skeptically. He did not. He could not have been more welcoming. I knew him a little bit going in. It's not like he was a stranger because, as I say, I'd been interviewing him and Eddie likes to joke and did on the air at the time about, yes, I remember you as a runny nosed <laughs> little kid going around the locker room with a tape recorder. <laughs> you know, I mean, we all used to do Eddie imitations because, you know, 18 was uh, and he is a, a unique figure. And, and so my reservations about being accepted by him evaporated really with the first handshake after I took the job. And I I think I I noticed that, and I'm not taking any credit for this whatsoever. I think Eddie, at least at first, was energized by the change. Not that there was anything between him and Jiggs that would suggest that that he was hoping for a change, quite the opposite, I'm sure. But just that I think at everybody's uh, in everybody's career, there comes a point when change is good. And I think that was the mantra that I used on an early sports channel spot that we did, um, trying to convince people who might have felt otherwise. Um, so, you know, Eddie was on board from the very beginning. And I think, if anything, I was encouraged to draw some things from him analytically that he might not have offered before for whatever reason. And I think the biggest reason probably was just the changing landscape of the role of the analyst in television. You know, when I got there in 95, I think it was still considered a play-by-play man's show, meaning Mm -hmm. television sports. That's changed over the years. With all of the technology and all of the various cameras and replay equipment that we have now, it's an analyst's job to be sure. And a play-by-play guy has to be willing to subjugate his ego to build up the abilities and the attributes of the analyst. And, and I needed to do that with Eddie um, because I think I was the first there were not there was an accomplishment for me. But my generation was the first that would have to, as I say, subjugate our own personalities and training to really pump up the analyst. So um, that's something Eddie embraced. It's something I embraced. And then when, you know, you move on to, to Joe, I think Eddie had, you know, basically had his his fill of it, the traveling, the you know, the demands and then. And then Joe comes in and and I think that and I mean this, I, I would put our shows up against any local televised hockey broadcast in the United States. The years that Kevin Meininger and Larry Roth were our producer and director and later Paula McHale directed, uh, produced some and, and Joe and me and the rest of our crew. I put those shows up against any in the country at that time. Joe just took us to a way different level than we'd ever been before. And and frankly, he's one of the finest human beings I've ever met, you know, transcendent of just broadcasting. So we became fast friends, as I did with Billy Jaffe. And then Butch comes along. And I'd known Butch since, you know, he was a player. And I used to love to needle him because I'd kid him and say, hey, Butch, remember, I'm old enough to have seen you play. And, and and we had a lot of fun with that, and which became a fast friend, as did Billy. So I've been blessed to work with analysts who I think I connected with personally as well as professionally. Love them all, every one of them. Uh, and in a lot of those years, you were you were compensating for 
it's a not great product on the ice, you know, especially those first, Ooh. those early years in the, in the late nineties. And, uh, you know, I can only, and certainly, you know, uh, after the full year lockout, when things got a little bit bleak for a few years, um, how do you, how do you carry through that? You know, when you're, you're not just calling some names that you probably, you know, guys that aren't necessarily regular NHLers, we certainly were both a part of some, some seasons where you'd, you'd really have to dig deep in the Google to, to figure out who guys were that were just been called up or signed or whatever. Um, but it must be, it is, it is taxing when you're covering a losing team, uh, sure. as a writer and as a broadcaster, I can only imagine because there are times when you're expected to put a bit of a cheerier face on things. So, so how difficult was that, especially from some of those early years when you, when you first took over? Well, for one thing, and someone might be surprised by this, the best thing we had going for us in those early years was Mike Milbury, because Mike got it. He understood what we were up against. He never implored being a, you know, a homer or ignoring the reality. He just wanted us to be fair. And we had our battles here and there, but we always came out, you know, not only shaking hands, but stronger for it because, you know, Personal discourse can solve a lot of problems. It's when you hide behind your agenda and they never are aired out, either behind closed doors or wherever else they have to be, that you run into problems. And Mike would never let problems like that fester. I'm sorry. I know there are a lot of Islander fans who look back at the Mike Milbury era and understandably, you know, cringe, but I have way different emotions about it. Um, You know, Mike had his hands tied, as we all know, because The ownership wasn't putting money into it. But as difficult as those first few years were for me, Mike made them so, so, so much easier. And I'll never forget him for that. Um, You know, he he just got it. And that's the only way I can put it. Now, you know, you want to start rehashing trades that were made. We can do that (laughs) and basically fillet him. And, you know, that's a whole other issue. Um, and one that if you want to discuss, I'm more than willing or happy to, but my transition as difficult as it was for a lot of reasons, I was learning television. I knew I had a fan base, maybe the majority at first of which despised me for my background. Um, but I, I always leaned on something that Lindsay Nelson said many, 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 many years ago. Lindsay was one of the original Mets announcers who was once asked, who do you think the most popular broadcaster in baseball is today? And Lindsay said, I don't know, but I guarantee you one thing, he works for a winning team. So <laughs> I, I knew I was never going to be accepted until the Islanders turned the corner. And, and thankfully that was the case. But, but again, getting through those early years, as difficult as they were for the fans, and I get it, um, I give a lot of credit personally to helping me get through it, for helping me get through it to Mike Milbury. In those and and shock like it said, in that. <laughs> um, no, I you know, and I think we see Mike, you know, he's had a very long career uh in broadcasting himself. I think he's always understood the the showmanship entertainment part of it, which is uh mm-hmm. which is super important, especially for a sport that's um a, a team and a sport that's that can be in the periphery, especially if things aren't going well. So um, you know, and I think when the team did finally take the a step forward in 2001 and you got to call some playoff games uh for a few years straight what was that atmosphere like i mean i, I remember certainly towards the tail end you would occasionally uh have your sit down with charles wong um kind of a once a year thing when garth snow took over uh obviously a different on sort camera of public, you mean, you mean yeah a different sort yeah. of public mm-hmm. personality but 
But the transition right. to Charles, which kind of started to at least stabilize the ownership part of it, what was, and then the the team, you know, a little bit more, uh, a little bit more free with with contracts and some good, some bad, but at least some playoff games. What were your memories like of kind of the early two thousands when oh, when boy. the spotlight turned a little bit more to the Islanders in a good way? Arthur, that two thousand one two thousand two season was by far the most enjoyable of the twenty one years, and thanks to the lockout, twenty seasons that I had broadcasting for the Islanders. That season changed everything for me personally and for the Islanders on the ice, for the way they were uh, received by their fans and perhaps perceived by others in the market. That was what I continue to call to this day a renaissance season for all of us. Now, you know, for me, it started very early because I found out over the summer of 01 that they were going to finally retire Brian Trottier's number. And it's not as though they hadn't wanted to do it years ago. It just finally needed to to happen because Brian needed to sign off on it. And for whatever the reasons that delayed that, it finally was back in place. I believe he was part of the organization then. And and so that was a night um, in late October of 01. Actually, it was an afternoon when they retired his number that I basically demanded to MC. And just to back it up a little bit, in the early years, whenever they had, I say the early years of my tenure there, whenever they had on-ice ceremonies, um, particularly when they were honoring the dynasty team or you know, basically anything that called for a ceremony, um, they didn't want me doing it. And we never actually had a discussion one-on-one about it, but they, meaning the organization, were afraid that I'd get booed or something. And, and I probably would have been those first few years, but it gets to 0102. They get off to a good start. Now it's Brian Trottier day in late October. Everybody's feeling a lot better about things, but I didn't know they'd be feeling a lot better about things over the summer when they announced that. And I went right to management, ownership, whoever it was. I don't even remember. And I say, I'm doing this. I said, I want to MC that. Brian's a friend. And, and he was for reasons I can explain later if you're interested. But I said, I think Brian would want it or at least sign off on it if it wouldn't be necessarily his first choice. I said, I don't care what the fans do and they can boo me all they want. This is for Brian. I want to do this for Brian. And they talked to him. He said, yeah. And they said, "Okay, fine. And, you know, they still took precautions. Like usually when you're introduced, you're walking out from the, the, you know, the runway to the microphone. They said, we want you to be at the microphone. When the PA says, here's our master of ceremonies, Howie Rose, and get right to it, okay? It's like, yeah, whatever. So so sure enough, I'm at the podium. Whoever was doing the PA introduced me. And would you believe it? I got a great ovation. And it shocked me, (laughs) frankly. It was so warm, really, because I was expecting the worst. But I said, whatever it is, I'm going to give it time to, when I say give it time, I mean, I'll take a beat, a couple of seconds, and that's it. But I'm not just stepping on my own introduction because that sounds awkward. So whatever the reaction, that'll be the reaction. And it was so positive and so warm. And I can't tell you what that did for me. That was one of the happiest days of my career because that day I said, you know what? They could say whatever they want on, on Internet message boards or whatever existed then long before Twitter and social media as we know it now. I said, that's it. You know, if I'm getting an ovation like that, they've accepted me and that's the end of it. And and so to me, that was the day I became the Islanders broadcaster and, and the ceremonies went great and the Islanders get off to this great start 
and they end up making the playoffs. And and that series with Toronto, ooh, baby, that was an absolute slugfest. I loved it. It was dirty. It was vicious. It was hockey. That's the hockey I grew up watching. Yeah, guys got hurt. And did we take liberties? <laughs> if I had to paraphrase from Animal House, yeah, we did. But it was um, it was a battle unlike any hockey playoff that I had broadcast before. And I just couldn't wait for that next season, 02-03. But they just didn't sustain what they had in 01-02. But that was my favorite season with the Islanders. Are there are there players, uh, players, coaches, people that you know, one or two people that uh, that come to mind from your tenure that that are kind of the the, the connections that you made, or uh, you know, getting to see certain guys play every day that you think that was that was special for me in those in those two decades. Well, look, until John Tavares came along, they didn't have the transcendent star. You know, in 0102, Alexi Ashen wasn't that kind of player. It always seemed like Alexi was just a little less than what everybody expected. And, you know, if he was um, a 35th pick overall instead of where he was drafted up at the top, then maybe people would have accepted him differently. But, you know, he had a nice career. He did okay with the Islanders, better than okay. He was a good person. He was a good man, you know. I think that gets overlooked by people who just expect certain things in terms of goals, assists, and points. And, and, um, and I, I just – I think Ash was a good guy. I enjoyed it. I, I really loved what Michael Pecka brought to the team that year because he wasn't Mark Messier, but right. he was a leader that was respected within his room the way players respected Messier or other great captains of any generation within their own rooms. He brought them something they hadn't had in the time I'd been there. And it was great to see everything sort of coalesce around him. Um, so I even said to him at the end of that season, when we got back from Toronto after the seventh game, you know, how much I enjoyed what he did for all of us, meaning anybody connected with the organization. He gave it a legitimacy that they hadn't had in a while. So I, I'll single Michael Pekka out there. And then, you know, I mean, there were so many others. I mean, Jason Blake was a hoot. Um, I could see where people would say on a personal level, maybe he's an acquired taste. But um, <laughs> I think we got each other. And so I enjoyed a good relationship with him. Um, and I'm sure I'm going to leave people off out moving along because, you know what, as you get a little older, you find that the ones that you, you really get on with because you have more in common with them are the coaches and the management yeah. because you're more of their age, you know. So when Butchie became the coach, um, oh, my God, I mean, it was like being taken into the, uh, you know, state secrets. You know, Butchie just trusted us. We never, ever, and I think he'll tell you this to this day, we never burned him. But he felt that the more we knew about the inner workings of the team, the more we would understand what he and they were trying to do on the ice. And so that coaching staff with Butchie and, and Lauren Henning, I mean, you know, I should have mentioned Lorne at the top. Lorne is one of my favorite people I've ever met in hockey. But now, you know, this almost becomes a stream of consciousness where I can go on for an hour and I won't. But, the, the you know, the, the coaching staff and staffs in particular were the ones that I, I felt the greatest kinship with, among from aside from those I've already mentioned. And I guess uh, we fast forward to uh, a few years ago when you finally got to call a, a series winning goal i mean the, i would say finally there weren't a lot of playoff series in that time unfortunately but uh but you know knowing that that you were stepping away um 
and knowing, you know, too, that in the in the modern era of hockey, that the local broadcasters don't always get to go on to the next rent to the second round. But uh, what was that that night like uh, in Brooklyn when John Tavares scored the goal to beat Florida? And kind of uh, your your tip of the cap to the to the Islanders after two decades. You know, it's the last call I've ever made in hockey. I don't know that I'll get a chance to make another one. So um, if I have to go out that way, it's a great way to go. Um, I knew about 95% that I was done going into that season, never mind that series. And then you know what happens. Playoffs are so great. I mean, what's better than the Stanley Cup playoffs, right? So you're, you're so energized by the emotions of every shift that, you know, you think to yourself, I can't let this go. And that's why I say I was 95% sure, because I knew in my heart I couldn't do it anymore. You know, it was a matter of workload. It was a matter of logistics. And I started to think if I kept going, it was become going to become a matter of health because it was just an untenable schedule. And then I just I, I needed a stepping off point. And my initial plan was to step off before Brooklyn. But thanks to three lockouts, um, <laughs> I, I figured I needed to do one more year. And unfortunately, that meant having to do the you know Barclays Center first year. Um, so I, I was 95% sure that was it. My only reservation was give it two weeks. That was my commitment to myself. Give it a couple of weeks. Make sure you're not having misgivings or anything else doesn't pop up where you might say, let's do another year. And um, But I, you know, aside from that 5% I was holding out, yeah, I knew. But somebody asked me recently, I think it was on Twitter, if when I said, as I made the call, it's over, it's all over, that that was reflecting my tenure as the Islander announcer. <laughs> and I could not any more adamantly say, no, it was, <laughs> you know, it's all over was about, what was it, the 23, 23 years, years yeah. since they last won a playoff series. I mean, believe me, I felt that as much as the fans did. Um, I was hoping it would have come a whole lot sooner. You know, Yashin got the first goal in game seven in Toronto. I thought maybe that'd be the night, but it wasn't. <laughs> And, and there never was uh, another opportunity until then. And so it was bittersweet, melancholy, um, a night that I'm proud of because, as I say, if you're going to go out, that's a pretty good way to do it. But there were so many emotions that raced through my head for days after that. I think it was around the 27th or 8th of April. Maybe you have a date in front of you. I don't. Um, but... I, I seem to remember it was like the 16th or so of May, which is fully two and a half, maybe even closer to three weeks when I let MSG know that I was stepping down. And, and I knew during that three week interim that yeah, I, I had to, it was the right decision to make. But that's a night that I reflect upon uh, with a lot of happiness and an equal amount of sadness. But the sadness is only on a personal basis. It's it's what it meant to the organization and the fans. And, and that's why the positives went out over the, the sadness. Well, that's, it was a great way to go out and I think a good way to, to wrap up our chat here. So, uh, Howie Rose, we really appreciate you having here. We uh, I know all the Islander fans out there are almost all Met fans, so they'd be happy to hear you calling <laughs> some games even from an empty stadium at some time soon. And uh, for you also, we wish that. And uh, thanks, as, thanks for... Being a good travel buddy for the first few years of my time yeah. back on the beat and uh, and keep up the great work. Thank you so much for joining us. Arthur, my pleasure. Great catching up with you and I hope you and your family are safe and well. Stay that way. You too. Thanks a lot. That's all for us this week. We really appreciate everybody checking in. We'll have another guest next week, some more Islander talk, maybe even some hockey news to report on if they've come to some 
some conclusions. So this is No Sleep Till Belmont, your Islanders podcast from The Athletic. Thanks for listening.